21. The whole truth is assembled in these two authorities. They demonstrate the profound idiocy. It is certainly permissible to speak like Plato, who never loses his temper. I repeat the profound idiocy of those unfortunate souls who imagine that legislators are men, laws are paper, and nations may be constituted with ink. On the contrary, the latter show that writings are invariably a sign of weakness, ignorance, or danger, and that the more nearly perfect an institution is, the less it writes. What is certainly divine, that is, the church, wrote nothing at all in establishing itself, in order to make us feel that all written law is merely a necessary evil, generated by human frailty or malice, and which, moreover, has no authority except that received of a previous unwritten sanction. Twenty-two. Here we must deplore the glaring fallacy of a system which has divided Europe with such unfortunate consequences. Its partisans say, we believe only in the word of God. What a misuse of words. We alone believe in the word, while our dear enemies stubbornly persist in believing only scripture. As if God could or would alter the nature of his creation and impart to scripture the life and efficacy it lacks. The holy scripture, now then, is it not a writing? Was it not formed with a pen and a little black fluid? Does it understand what to tell one man and what to hide from another? Did not Leibniz and his maidservant read the same words there? Can this writing be more than the image of the word? However venerable it thus becomes when we interrogate it, must it not keep a divine silence? If it were attacked or slurred, could it defend itself in the Father's absence? Praise be to the truth. If the immortal word, la parole, does not give life to scripture, it will never become speech, parole, that is to say, life. May the others invoke the silent word as often as they please. We shall smile peacefully at this false god while ever awaiting with tender impatience the time when its disillusioned partisans will throw themselves into our arms, which have for nearly three centuries been ready to embrace them. 23. Each sensible person may become convinced on this point by a little reflection on an axiom as important as it is universal, that nothing great has great beginnings. All of history yields no exception to this law. Crescit occulto velut arbor ivo. This is the motto of all great institutions. Therefore, any false institution writes voluminously, for it knows its weaknesses and seeks support. 
From this fact springs the indubitable result that no real and great institution can be based on written law, since men themselves, instruments, in turn, of the established institution, do not know what it is to become, and since imperceptible growth is the true promise of durability in all things. A remarkable example of this sort is the power of the popes, which I do not intend to discuss dogmatically here. Numerous writers since the 16th century have employed a prodigious amount of erudition to prove, by going back to the cradle of Christianity, that at first the bishops of Rome were not what they later became. They took for granted that everything not found in primitive times is an abuse. Now, I say, without the least spirit of contention or desire to offend anyone, that in this they displayed about as much philosophy and genuine learning as one who tries to find the dimensions of a mature man by measuring a babe in arms. This sovereignty I am speaking of here was born like others and grows as they do. It is lamentable to watch fine minds exhausting themselves to prove by infancy that manhood is a deformity. The idea of any institution full-grown at birth is a prime absurdity and a true logical contradiction. If the enlightened and open-minded enemies of this power, and surely there are many such, examine the matter from this point of view, as I affectionately urge, I am sure all these objections derived from antiquity will vanish like a thin mist from before their eyes. As for abuses, I should not concern myself with them here. However, since I have already mentioned them, I will say that there is much to be deflated in the oratory the last century had compelled us to read on this big topic. A time will come when every nation will consider the popes against whom the greatest outcry was heard, such as Gregory VII, as friends, guardians, and saviors of humanity, as the true founding fathers of Europe. No one will doubt it when learned Frenchmen shall be Christians and English savants, Catholics, which must surely come to pass at last. Twenty-four. But at this moment, what penetrating words can make us heard by an age infatuated with Scripture, and so greatly at variance with the Word as to believe that men can make constitutions, languages, and even sovereignties, by an age for which reality is lies, and lies reality, which cannot even see what happens before its eyes, which feasts on books, seeking the equivocal lessons of Livy or Thucydides, while closing its eyes to the truth which shines forth in the newspapers. If a humble mortal's prayers could obtain from Providence one of those memorable decrees which form history's great eras, I would ask it to inspire some powerful nation 
which had gravely offended it with the proud idea of constituting itself politically, starting at the basis. And if the ancient familiarity of a patriarch were permitted me, despite my unworthiness, I would say, grant this people everything. Give them genius, knowledge, wealth, esteem, and especially an overweening self-assurance and that spirit both supple and enterprising, which nothing can hinder, nothing intimidate. Extinguish their former government, obliterate their memories, destroy their affections, spread terror around them, blind or paralyze their enemies, set victory to guard all their frontiers, so that none of their neighbors could intervene in their affairs or disturb their progress. Let this nation be illustrious in the sciences, rich in philosophy, intoxicated with human power, free from prejudice, from every tie and all higher influence. Supply all her wants, lest in time she should say, I lacked this or that restrained me. In short, let her act freely with this immensity of means, that at length, under thy relentless protection, she may become an eternal warning to the human race. 25. It is true we cannot expect such a combination of circumstances, which would literally constitute a miracle. But similar, though less startling events reveal themselves here and there in history, even in our times. Although they may not all have that ideal force, for example, which I wished for, they can still teach us valuable lessons. Less than 25 years ago, we witnessed a solemn attempt to regenerate a great nation which was mortally ill. It was the first experiment of the great work, and the preface, if I may so express it, of the frightful book which we have since been made to read. Every precaution was taken. The country's sages even believed it was their duty to consult the modern deity in its foreign sanctuary. They wrote to Delphi, and two famous pontiffs solemnly replied. The prophecies they announced on this occasion were not, as formerly, delicate leaves, the sport of breezes. They are bound. Quidque haec sapientia posit, tunc patuit. It is only fair to acknowledge that in whatever the nation owed merely to its own good sense, there are elements we can still admire today. Certainly, every qualification was united in the head of that wise and august person called upon to take the reins of government. Those chiefly interested in maintaining the old laws, such as the aristocracy, voluntarily made a noble sacrifice to the public, and in order to strengthen the supreme authority, they consented to a slightly different description of sovereignty. Alas, all this human wisdom was at fault, and everything ended in death. 
26. Someone will say, but we know what caused the failure of the enterprise. How then? Must God send angels in human form, commissioned to destroy a constitution? Secondary causes will always be necessary. What matter which they are? All instruments are effective in the great artificer's hands. But people are so blind that if tomorrow some constitution monger should come to organize a nation and constitute them with a little black fluid, the crowd would hasten once again to believe in the miracle announced. Again, they would say, nothing is missing, all is foreseen, all written down, while precisely because everything could be seen, written, and discussed, it would be shown that the Constitution was empty, offering only an ephemeral appearance. Twenty-seven. I believe I have read somewhere that very few sovereignties are able to justify the legitimacy of their origin. Let us allow the reasonableness of this assertion. Even so, objectionable acts which a chief may have committed will not tarnish his successors. The myths which would more or less conceal the origin of his authority would only be a disadvantage, the necessary consequence of a law of the moral order. Otherwise, it would follow that the sovereign could only rule legitimately by virtue of a deliberation of all the people, that is to say, by the grace of the people. This will never happen, for there are no truer words than those of the author of the Considerations on France. The people will always accept their masters and never choose them. It is essential that the origin of sovereignty should show itself to be beyond the sphere of human power, so that even those men who appear to influence it directly are only circumstances. As for legitimacy, if its origin seems obscure, it is explained by God's prime minister in the province of this world, time. It is nevertheless true that certain contemporary signs are unmistakable when we are there to observe them. But an expansion of this idea belongs to another work. 28. Everything brings us back to the general rule. Man cannot create a constitution, and no legitimate constitution can be written. The collection of fundamental laws which necessarily constitute a civil or religious society never has been or will be written a priori. Only when society discovers itself already constituted, not knowing how, can certain particular articles be made known or explained in writing. But almost invariably, these declarations are the effect or the cause of very great evils, and they always cost the people more than they are worth. 29. 
29. To this general rule that no constitution may be written or made a priori, we know but one exception, the legislation of Moses. This alone was cast, so to speak, like a statue, and written even to the smallest details by an extraordinary man who said, Fiat. Without this work, ever after needing corrections, additions, or modifications by himself or anyone else, this alone has withstood time, from which it borrowed and expected nothing. It survived 1,500 years, and even after 18 more centuries, have passed since the great anathema which struck it on the fated day. We see it enjoying a second life, and still binding, with some nameless and mysterious bond, the various scattered families of a people dispersed but not disunited. Like magnetism, and with a similar force, it operates at a distance, making one whole of many widely separated parts. Evidently, to intelligent minds, this legislation surpasses the limits of human capability and is a magnificent exception to a general law which has only yielded once, and then to its author and it single-handedly manifests the divine mission of the great Hebrew lawgiver much better than the entire work of that English prelate, who with the strongest mental powers and immense erudition, nevertheless had the misfortune to support a great truth by a miserable fallacy. 30. Since the principle of every constitution is divine, it follows that a man can do nothing with one unless he seeks the aid of God, whose instrument he then becomes. Now this is a truth to which the whole human race has always strikingly witnessed. Examine history, which is experimental politics. There we shall inevitably find the divinity always called to the aid of human frailty. Fable, much truer than ancient history, for those who are ready to understand it, further corroborates this demonstration. Always, it is an oracle who founds cities. Always, this oracle affirms heavenly protection and a heroic founder's success. Kings especially, Heads of rising empires are very often designated, almost branded by heaven in some extraordinary manner. How many frivolous people have mocked the saint Ampule without ever dreaming that it is a hieroglyphic which one need only read to understand? <laughs>